0: Thank you, Arun. I know week after week, rolling solo, leading into the camera is not the easiest. You are doing a really beautiful job in serving our community. We're grateful for it. Um, If you've been around Seven Mile Road for a while, you know that I love to drive. Uh, I love to drive. It actually produces a great deal of Joy for me to be out on the open road whether I'm alone or I've got my family in tow. I'm in for a good road trip. I love to drive. And you also know that there's one kind of setting within which I'm a little less excited to drive. I've I've talked about it before, but it it has been flooding back to my mind this week that I really don't like driving in fog. That as much as I love the open road, I love being behind the wheel of a car when driving through a fog bank that has rolled in and clouded our vehicle. It is unsettling. Uh, It is disorienting. It is potentially dangerous because there's this moment where all of a sudden your lights are bouncing off off of this fog back into your eyes. And in that moment, there's this sense in which, well, I could hit the brights, but that makes the matter worse. I, I can't go fast. I have to actually slow down, turn on the fog lamps, and begin to look for the lines on the road just to make sure that I'm staying on the road. It is a very disorienting and potentially dangerous moment, particularly if you move fast and you try to throw on the brights and just keep, keep about your business. And in many ways, I think The text that we're going to study together this morning is is actually a text that's trying to help us navigate a very significant fog bank together as the community of faith. The text that we're going to study is Romans chapter 14, and the fog bank that it is going to be introducing us to and then helping us navigate through the midst of is the fog bank of strongly held, high-stakes opinions. A community that is is forging opinions, opinions that are differing from other members of the community that are somewhat high stakes, that are strongly held, but are in fact just opinions. And into that space, the fog rolls in and it makes ongoing journeying together dangerous, disorienting. The idea that into this space, we will see in the book of Romans that if we don't slow down, If we don't find the the lines on the road and then stay between them, we might do great harm to ourselves or, or to others. As we're thinking about what does it look like to be citizens of a different kingdom, we want to lean in really kind of where we were at point two in the sermon last week. And I know you all immediately know what that was. But point two in the sermon last week is about this idea that the community of faith is different. It shatters expectations because it has a diverse set of ways of thinking about things in the world and, and engages in nuance. And into that space, I want to I drill down and say into that space where we have diverse views about things, diverse opinions about circ- secondary or tertiary issues. Even if those issues are high stakes, crucial, important, but they're not core to who we are as followers of Jesus, into that space, what we will oftentimes is that the fog can be really thick and we can run off the road if we're not careful. And so Romans 14 is going to be the fog lamps for us. It's going to cast light down under the fog and And it's actually going to illuminate for us two lines that run on the road. And that if we stay between these lines, we will together be able to navigate the fog bank of strongly held opinions. What we'll see is this. We must navigate the fog bank of high stakes opinions by developing convictions, line one on the street, and loving our siblings, line two. And I want us to see what this means in the book of Romans, chapter 14. So so if you would, open your scriptures with me. Let's see if we can track along and figure out how do we navigate through the the dense fog of strongly held, high-stakes opinions. Permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. In a time as disorienting as the one in which we live, praise God That his scriptures illumine our path. We would be really wise to pay attention. I'm gonna start by reading for us verses one through six. They'll be displayed on the bottom third of your screen, or if you have a Bible, please grab it. Let me read these verses as an introduction to this chapter for us. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Well, this is an introduction to the fog bank. And the first thing I want to establish is this, that that high stakes opinions are in fact a confusing and disorienting fog bank. They are. They were in Rome and they still are today. I I think for us to understand what Paul is addressing, we have to understand his introduction to this chapter that he gives us in verse 1, where he says, Now, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Paul is going to be wrestling with this divide between those who are weak in faith and strong in faith. In essence, he just means there's different categories where opinions have formed about crucial issues, though secondary, and as a result, there is a division between these folks. The division apparently is so strong that Paul, in the context of his great theological treatise, his his epistle to the Romans, he has spent 11 chapters exploring the depths and the beauties of the gospel, and then he's applying it in chapters 12 to 16, and right here he takes a full chapter to address this issue because it's causing heartache and division and struggle in the community. And he says, listen, welcome one another to the table, but not to quarrel over opinions. And those, that word quarrel and opinions, I think helps set the stage for the chapter and for our discussion. The word quarrel literally means to make a judgment or to discern. It's used three times in the New Testament and the other two times it is, has a positive usage. It's actually something we're supposed to do. In 1 Corinthians 12, we are supposed to discern the spirits. That's the same word. We're supposed to, the word for quarrel literally means to discern or to judge. So we're supposed to discern, is this a demonic spirit or an angelic being? We should be aware that both are at work in the world and we need to make a discernment or a judgment between the two. Then elsewhere in Hebrews 5, we are called to discern good from evil. In essence, the New Testament bears out that there are realities that need discernment and they need a decision to be made. Is this good or is this evil? Is this demonic or angelic? But Paul says, listen, don't do this thing, which gets translated quarrel. It means to discern or to make a judgment. He says, don't quarrel over opinions. And the word for opinion literally means an internal discussion or debate, that there's there's an issue on the table that is not primary. It's not doctrinal. It's not demonic or angelic, good or evil, but it is a secondary meaningful issue that Christians have developed robust opinions about. And he says, you will be tempted to want to make a judgment or a discernment about someone else's internal dialogue or struggle with an issue. And he says, listen, we're not going to do that. He's going to begin to help us understand the fog bank that is rolling in. And he's saying there will be strong opinions and we will be constantly desiring to make a final decision or declaration about this issue. And he says, beware of doing so. Uh, These are high stakes opinions as it relates to first century Christian church. Did you hear what they were? In verse two, there's this this division. Some think they can eat anything and some think they can only eat vegetables. And how is this about the most compelling diet of the day? Is this about being a vegetarian? No. Very clearly, this connects to 1 Corinthians 8. Linguistically, situationally, it is a similar scenario that what we are talking about is meat sacrificed to idols. And some people think that if I eat meat, I'm participating in idolatry, demonic worship, undercutting the glory of God. So they have a strong opinion. I'm going to eat only vegetables because I don't want to participate in idolatry. now, Now catch me, idolatry is a serious issue and they have a serious opinion about it. And Paul says, others think, well, everything I'm free to eat. And they would say, the gospel is so powerful that it has set me free from being afraid of those things because idols are nothing. And so I eat freely knowing that Jesus is bigger and greater than that all. And they say, the fact that you're afraid actually shows that you don't believe Jesus is that big and that great. So these opinions are high stakes opinions about idolatry and the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel that's causing deep unrest in the community. And then interestingly, not only that, you heard it in verse, verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Most every commentator is in agreement that what they're talking about is the Sabbath here. The people are arguing, do we keep the Sabbath in the same way that we did in the Old Testament? That's kind of a big deal. It's one of the Ten Commandments. This is the law of God. You can almost imagine a first century house church wrestling with, well, are you telling me that the law of Moses doesn't matter? This is the Ten Commandments. This is a big deal. You have to respect the word of God. Do you not love the scriptures? To which the other person says, oh, well, the fact that Jesus was resurrected on Sunday and and he actually has redeemed our understanding of the way that the work week works and what role Sabbath plays that in believing the gospel, I'm entering the full-time eternal rest of Jesus. So I view every day the same. Now, hear me. This is not an insignificant opinion and it is not lightly held by the members of this community. They're coming to blows about this. This is why Paul would spend an entire chapter trying to address the issues of idolatry and Sabbath and the opinions that are held. These are high stakes opinions that run deep as to how we read the scriptures and how we apply it. And let me just be clear, it's not always clean. I'm guessing that for some of the people reading this passage, they would say, "Paul." this is not merely an opinion. We're talking about the law of Moses. They would say this falls into the category of good and evil, angelic and demonic. And Paul's going, no, 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 listen, this is secondary under the authority of the kingship of Jesus. And so listen to me, you're wrestling about opinions. Be careful about quarreling about opinions. I will just make this note out front. Some things that are going to fall into this category are going to strike really deep in our hearts, and we're going to be tempted to think this is very clearly a good and evil issue. Paul, in this text, is going to challenge us in all sorts of gray areas, secondary issues in our faith, and say, be careful about quarreling over opinions. You see, it depends on the time and the place throughout history what the set of things might be. For first century Rome, it was the Sabbath and idolatry. For us, it could be any number of things. We were talking last week about political party. And with with November 3rd coming this week, that is a pressing one where we have developed opinions about what is a secondary issue. You can't turn to chapter and verse and find out, am I always supposed to be a Republican or a Democrat? It's, It's not in there. There are implications of the text by which we form opinions on secondary issues, and those are important. But political party might be part of it. Wearing masks or not wearing masks, and the way that we view that, the way that we view that in the gathering of the body of faith, and there are people within our community that have strong opinions about are we operating in freedom or in fear? And there are, there are churches all across the country and all across the world that are wrestling with those issues where people are formulating opinions And then they want to make judgments about other people's opinions. And into this space, we're hearing that kingdom people don't quarrel over those opinions. This is a fog bank that's confusing. It's disorienting. And I'll make this note as well. The way that we think about the church's proper response to racial injustice in the world now, now hear me, underneath it, like idolatry, like Sabbath, is something that, that we need a strong conviction about, that God is for justice. He's for every, every nation, tribe, and tongue. But listen, the men and the women of this community, of communities all across the country, are formulating their opinions about the right application of that scripture to the issues in play, and they're doing so differently. And into the fog bank and the confusion and the disorientation of these sorts of discussions, Paul starts by saying, listen, this this is going to be confusing. The fog bank is rolling in and, and, and I want you to gather and not just gather for the purpose of quarreling. For determining everyone else's opinions for them. So the question is this. Into this context within which we live, where each of us has developed opinions about real issues in the world, the question is, how does a Christian community navigate these sorts of fog banks? How? And Romans 14 is going to cast the light for us and paint the two lines on the road saying, stay between these lines. The first one is this. How do we do it? We navigate the fog bank by developing convictions. Develop convictions. Look back at verse five and six with me. This seems so counterintuitive, but it connects right to where we were last week and takes us deeper because it says this, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What a surprising statement from Paul. He goes on to say, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What he's saying is, be fully convinced of your opinion. And as you are fully convinced, honor God in it and give thanks to him. So like, don't be half-hearted. Don't sit on the fence. Develop and a, a conviction about this opinion, about this secondary or tertiary issue that matters and is high stakes, develop an opinion. And, it, and you should be fully convinced, so much so that as you engage in that activity, as you take steps into that activity, that you should do so with freedom and joy to God and a heart full of God, gratitude, not thinking, ooh, I'm doing this because I feel pressured or because someone else is judging my opinions. Or, he's saying, develop a conviction. And interestingly, this is stunning to me. Look down at verse 14 because Paul actually pushes even further. In verse 14, this is what he says. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. What did Paul just do there? He took sides. (laughs) I mean, this is what's interesting. He's dealing with an issue of opinion and he's saying, everybody's welcome at the table. The weak person who says, I can only eat vegetables because I don't want to participate in idolatry. The strong person that says, I can eat everything because the gospel is that powerful. Paul says, everybody's welcome. And he says, by the way, I'm on this team. I, I know and I am fully persuaded. Like everything in me agrees with this idea that I can eat this meat freely. And then in his next breath, he says, but if you're not convinced and you do eat, that's sin for you. He injects relativity into this conversation, which feels so unpauline, right? To say that for some it is and for some it isn't. To say that that he's not actually painting black and white. He's actually painting in gray, saying, I am fully convinced, but for you, if you're not fully convinced, don't you eat this meat because that will be sin for you. I think, in essence, what he's saying is this, and this is a warning for all of us, beware of becoming a fundamentalist, whether of a progressive or a conservative stripe. A fundamentalist is a person in the life of Jesus's church who who has the core tenets, which we, are, we should hold in a firm, closed grip, would be willing to die on the hill for the deity of Jesus and what he completed on the cross and the emptiness of the tomb and the goodness of God and the trustworthiness of his word and the sinfulness of man. Like the core doctrines, we should be ready to go to battle on. But there's this reality that Paul is saying, be careful if in that closed fist of issues that you are ready to go to battle on, if you start putting every one of your well-formed opinion, opinions into that hand, he's going, that's gonna be really dangerous. Cause Paul says, I'm actually fully convinced of this, but there's space at the table for you. And if you're not fully convinced, you need to go your own way on this one. Cause it's gray. It's a bit foggy. It's challenging. It's unclear for us as a community how exactly this is going to look. And so my question before we move on to the other line on the road is this. Are you engaging with your world with intentionality? Do you have a well-formed biblical worldview? Like understanding how to view all things through the lens of the scripture. In 1963, Time Magazine did a, a spread on Karl Barth, the great Christian theologian. And Karl Barth made a very famous comment in that article in 1963. He said this, I have often told young theologians to take up a newspaper in one hand and to take up a Bible in their other hand, and then to always interpret the newspaper with their Bible. This is, is what it means to develop biblical worldview, to think deeply about the world, to think deeply about God's word, and to make sure that we're always interpreting one with the other. And so, just a, a way of finding yourself on the map here of, of dealing with where ought there to be conviction and transformation. Let me ask you a few questions. Where are you tempted to default? Are you tempted to default by, by laying down your Bible and really loving your newspaper or your iPhone, reading all of the next updates, but not really digging into the scriptures? If so, you're a hackberry. Hackberry is the sort of tree that's in my backyard that I inherited when I bought my home, and they're a little bit deceiving because they grow up tall and fast. They have a, a, they've cast beautiful shade, but they have, they have shallow roots. And we had an arborist come to our house and tell us about this big, beautiful tree in our backyard, that it is about to fall on your house and kill someone. You have to cut it down. And What I realized is that if you're all newspaper and no Bible, you're always going to have something meaningful to say about what's going on in the world. You're going to have well-formed opinions. You're going to be able to speak to all the different issues of the day, but the roots are shallow, and when the winds grow, you will be toppled. You see, if we're all, all newspaper and no Bible, we're a hackberry. Are you all Bible and no newspaper? You think it's all bad news. I don't want to engage. I don't want to think deeply about what's going on globally or economically or politically. I'm just going to study the Bible. If that's you, you're a shepherd's tree in the Kalahari Desert. Let me explain. In the Kalahari Desert, there's a tree called the shepherd's tree and its roots run 230 feet deep, the longest, deepest roots we know of in the world. And very few people ever see or interact with the tree. It's beautiful, it's amazing. It can survive in the wilderness because its roots run deep and they're always watered. It actually can live in the middle of the desert, but incidentally, it's in the middle of the desert. It, it is actually casting shade for people that aren't there. And the struggle is that if you're all Bible and no newspaper, your, your roots are going to be watered and you will stand. You're going to live. But you're going to be answering questions that nobody's asking. You're not going to be able to engage meaningfully with the people around you. You are going to be a shepherd's tree in the Kalahari Desert. Are you neither? Have you laid down your newspaper and your Bible? If that's the case, you're tumbleweed you have no roots, you're not producing fruit, you're just blowing through, not thinking meaningfully about what's going in the world or what God's doing, and and this is not a biblical worldview. You see, we want to pick up the newspaper and pick up the Bible, think deeply, and make sure the Bible interprets the newspaper. In that space, you will be an oak of righteousness. Deep, roots, beautiful shade that is cast for others to come up under and to begin to understand and to be refreshed because of your presence. Let me ask you, are you developing a truly robust biblical worldview? We have to develop convictions, convictions about all the secondary and tertiary issues where where Christians have opinions, and we need opinions. You need to be fully convinced in your own mind because you've thought about it, you've prayed about it, you've sought God on it. Now, secondly, the other line on the road. We need to love our siblings. We need to love our siblings. Look back at verse 3 and 4 with me. This is the problem. Let no one who eats, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then skipping down to to later in the chapter in verses 10 through 13, he goes on to say this, "'Why do you pass judgment on your brother?' The exact same wording from up above. "'Or why do you despise your brother?' Same wording from up above. "'For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. "'For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, "'every knee will bow to me "'and every tongue will confess to God. "'So then each of us will give an account "'of himself to God. "'Therefore, let us not pass judgment "'on one another any longer.'" You see, what he's saying is, there's going to be this distinct temptation, and it's different for the strong and the weak. He says, for, for the strong, um, you're going to be tempted to despise or to mock. You've got this well-developed understanding, you've thought deeply, you've developed your conviction, and you look at someone who's afraid or someone who who doesn't view things like you do, or hasn't read as much, or or says foolish things in your opinion, and you start to mock them, you look down on them, you despise them, because why don't you just understand you're so ignorant on this issue, and it's offensive to me? That is the danger for the strong. The danger for the weak, as it is, is that you're tempted to judge, that you haven't read as much, but here's someone that carries their conviction with such strength, and and all of a sudden you start going, well, that person, you know, I, I, I want to judge or be done with that person. I don't, I don't agree with that. I'm ready to be done with them. That there's a certain sense in which we, we feel this on all of these divides where where we are tempted to despise and to judge, and all of a sudden it's it's actually dividing the community. It's dangerous and disorienting. Um. Uh, But ultimately, what God is saying is this. This is your brother or sister. Did you see that in verses 10 and following as we're reading? He says, this is your brother. Your brother, he says over and over again. He's going to say it again in verse 13. Don't put a stumbling block before your brother. And we could read brother or sister there. In essence, he's saying, your family, your family, and right now you're despising and judging one another because of the strongly held opinion. Beware, this is dangerous. And And the second thing he says is, it's not just your sibling, but he says, and by the way, God is going to judge. Every opinion is going to be laid bare. One day, everyone's going to stand before God. And what he just said twice over, up above he says, they're going to stand before their own master. Later he says, God is going to be the judge. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God in verse 10. In essence, what he's saying is, they're your sibling. God is their judge. Stay in your lane when I led my first HCPN residency, I had this group of church planners, and, and there's a guy named Roswell Smith who I love and adore. And there were differing theological and f- philosophical ministry views in the room. And as we would get into the nitty gritty, all of a sudden someone would start to go, well, and they'd be correcting. And all of a sudden you could see this collision coming and Roswell would go, stay in your lane. Everybody just stay in your lane. And it became kind of a punchline for us. It, would, it brought some levity and we would laugh and go, ah, yes. It's not my responsibility to correct every opinion in the room. It is my responsibility to love my brothers and sisters and trust that God is the judge that's going to reveal everything when all is said and done. You see, the invitation is not to be the judge and jury for everyone else. The actual invitation, as he starts saying, he says, "Don't, don't put up a stumbling block for any of your brothers. Later in verses 20 to 22, he says, don't for the sake of food destroy the work of God. He says in verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that would cause your brother to stumble. He says, actually, in these issues where you have freedom and you have opinions and you have convictions, I'm inviting you to lay your rights down to love your sibling, to meet them where they are. And then in verses 17 and 19, what he's saying is when you lay down your rights, you'll be able to pursue. uh, Verse 17, it says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And you you could sub in there, all of the secondary issues that we really want to make the primary issue about the kingdom of God. He says, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You see, we need to develop a conviction and then we need to understand how to carry that conviction. And that conviction within a community where there are differing opinions has to be carried in such a way that is producing peace and edification for others. I'm going to say this as plainly as I can, brothers and sisters. If you have developed a conviction on a secondary issue, though a crucial issue, and we can list a hundred of them, and you have developed a, a, a conviction on it, and that that conviction is causing in your heart and in your community division and discouragement and a lack of love. Beware. Beware. You might be right, but you're carrying it wrong. Do you hear it? What he's saying is the fog bank of differing opinions can derail and disorient us And into that space. He's saying, so yes, 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 develop a conviction, have a biblical worldview, be convinced of it, and then you better lay down your rights and love your brother and sister because otherwise this thing will send a shooting off the road altogether. You see, he's saying, make sure that the way that you carry it produces peace and mutual upbuilding in the community. You see, ultimately, the whole of this argument is grounded as is always the case in the scriptures and is certainly the case in Pauline theology in the gospel. Let me show you in verses seven and nine. He says this, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he would be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. What he's saying is on every category, there's this broad spectrum that runs from death to life, how you view it. You can't get any broader than death or life, except of course, the gospel. What what he's saying is that Jesus has arms wide enough on these opinions to hold us together truly. (laughs) What he's saying is consider brothers and sisters, consider how patient Jesus was with you. All of your improper views, poor convictions, your ignorance and missteps, and Jesus loved you and pursued you and he was patient with you, and he's patient still today All of the ways that we are still riddled with blind spots and misunderstandings and poorly formed opinions, Jesus just continues to uphold us and love us. Because he's saying, yeah, from death to life, like over it all, when you are mine, what I need you to hear is this, I am Lord of all. And listen, if the way that you are engaging in secondary and tertiary issues has not left room at the table for people that Jesus has invited to the table, it's not okay. It's not okay. Okay. And so the invitation is meditate on it. Soak in the mercy and the grace and the kindness and the patience of Jesus. And then let's love our brothers and sisters. Let's love one another with strongly held differing opinions, knowing that this is a fog bank. It's going to require that we move slowly and cautiously, but we hold to our convictions and we simultaneously love one another. And you know what that will look like? The kingdom of God. Citizens of a different kingdom. Something that causes the world to continue to scratch their heads and go, I haven't seen that before. Well-informed, thoughtful, convicted people that love and serve those across and through their disagreements. Oh, that by God's grace we would be that sort of people for His glory and for our joy. Let me pray for us. So, God, um, I'm thankful that your word—it's—it's um, it's equal opportunity and it's offense. It, it offends all of us, including the speaker. Um, it challenges and comforts and encourages, and it draws us into territory that is—it's uh, unusual. It's not of this world. And I want Seven Mile Road to be marked by kingdom people that walk with Jesus. And we need your help and your grace to do that. So would you fill our hearts with love for one another? Help us to have really well-formed, robust, biblical worldviews. And help us, God, please, to really love one another and in that space for Jesus to be displayed beautifully, for the redemptive story to be embodied and declared for the whole of our city and the whole of our world to see. We bless you. Jesus is in your name that we pray. Amen.